So to summarize uh, Maximus Call and Radio Show number 20, really had some great questions today. Uh, we talked a little bit about uh, recently about the difference between goals and values in terms of figuring out what you want over the next five years and the benefits of uh, you know uh, a values-driven life. Um, we had some great questions from YouTube about um, uh, like favorite biographies, how to pick a biography. We talked about the Keystone habit in terms of how to make progress towards your goals. Um, we talked about um, the whole sort of masculinity movement and how it was in, uh, inspired uh, Maximus. We talked about what a young man should look for in a significant other or if you're kind of like a little bit more middle-aged and how that's sort of different. Uh, we talked about sort of uh, why guys are drawn to male role models like Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson um, and how you should find the four different types of masculine role models um, that are helpful uh, in terms of figuring out how to be the best man that you can be. And finally, we talked a little bit about the research literature on accountability, peer groups, and group therapy, uh, and how it's tremendously beneficial for groups, for men to be in groups uh, in order to improve their mental and their physical health. Welcome everyone to Maximus Call-In Radio Show number 20, momentous occasion to get to the big two zero. I'm your host, Dr. Cam Sapa, and I'm gonna spend the next hour answering any questions that you have about mind, body, and masculinity. So. Special shout out to all of our community members who are joining us on Discord today. Yeah, great question. So your question was around what's the science uh, behind using accountability groups? So I think that the broader uh, purpose behind sort of accountability groups is, is what's the difference between sort of individual versus group-based intervention? Unfortunately, there's, there's literally probably a half a century of scientific literature on this because essentially accountability groups are a form of group therapy. Right. And there's a ton of literature on the use of group therapy. And, and the interesting thing is, so I, I uh, spent a decent amount of my career working at the VA or the Veterans Administration Hospital. Um, and that health system, in addition to a lot of large health systems in the United States, like Kaiser Permanente, essentially use group therapy as the first line treatment. So if you have a mental health issue, um, uh, as long as it's appropriate, they'll actually put you into group therapy before they even offer you individual therapy. Um, and the perception a lot of times people have is like, oh, it's inferior to individual treatment because you're not getting that one-on-one -on -one attention um, and care. Um, and that's not necessarily actually true. Now, there may be some you know, individual issues or like really complex cases that really do warrant individual treatment or care. But there's, there's a unique benefit actually to group therapy because it's not just the benefit that you're getting from the psychologist or the group leader that's facilitating the group, but you're learning from other people as well. So you're getting the benefit of not just one person's wisdom, but you know a dozen or more people's wisdom. And in addition to that, you also get the shared experience. The, the challenge with individual therapy or intervention is there, there is a power dynamic, right? There's a difference in the psychologist and the patient, uh, or if you will, the sort of teacher student relationship, right? One person is sort of imparting the knowledge and the other person is sort of receiving it. But when you're in a group uh, context, you're kind of peers, you're all going through the same sort of journey together. And so there's a, there's a greater level of sort of commiseration um, and empathy for shared experience. And that's why my experience actually running groups at the VA was tremendously beneficial because, you know, I can teach someone how to do, um, let's say, pain management for someone who has chronic pain on an individual one-on-one -on -one basis. And occasionally I would, but there was something uh, validating about being in a group of, you know, 10 other people who share similar health conditions to you. A, you don't feel alone. B, you get a greater sense of social support and connection from other people who are dealing with sort of similar things to you. Um, and it also validates it, right? So, you know, for instance, as a psychologist, you know, we might be talking about um, how you might want to approach versus avoid your pain and not let it get in the way of doing the things that are important to you. And, you know, you as a patient be like, ah, doc, I get it, but you don't have this pain. You don't understand what it's like to be in my shoes. But when you have a group and you have 10 other people there who are like, no, I actually do know what it's like to have pain. And, um, I may be at a different stage sort of in my acceptance or um, progression of my condition. And, and that I found actually to be very beneficial, right? You may have someone who's sort of not ready to change, 
but he sees someone who's like uh, ahead of him or her in sort of the uh, process. And that guy can be like, you know what? I know what you're talking about because I was in your shoes six months ago, 12 months ago, and I didn't believe it either. I was skeptical too, but here's all the things that I did. And here's some, some of the tips that I learned along the way um, so that you can kind of get to where I'm at. And there's, there's a lot more sort of believability when it comes from a peer. Um, not that people don't believe sort of experts, but there's something sort of special about someone who's just gone through what you've gone through and maybe just literally one or two steps ahead of you in that process. That's actually why I, I really enjoy mixed groups where you're not exactly all at the same starting line. Some people are a little further ahead. Some people are a little further behind. Some people may be very fit. Some people may be not fit, but they all kind of learn from each other and you get that diversity of experience. So I would say there's actually a ton of, of uh, research literature basically uh, validating the efficacy of group therapy, um, and which is why, like I said, these two major health systems, the VA and the Kaiser, uh, essentially use it as, as um, frontline treatment. Now, uh, group therapy is usually facilitated by a licensed mental health practitioner. And in some of the squads, I am sort of the group leader, right? Um, that we're that we're using here at Maximus, but there's also a separate body of literature that specifically talks about peer groups and peer support. So these are, if you will, almost like headless groups in the sense that it's not necessarily a, a licensed mental health professional that's running it, or if they are, they're kind of almost um, moderating it, uh, sitting back a little bit more passively um, and letting the peers kind of co-facilitate it together. Um, and there's a tremendous amount of literature that shows that that's effective too. For instance, there's studies um, with patients that have type 2 diabetes. Well, they put them together in uh, groups and help them uh, help each other, support each other in doing diabetes management. Um, and that actually works very well. Uh, so there, that body of literature validates it as well. And then I would say there's a third body of literature that has different types of groups that may not be mental health focused. Um, the best example, in my opinion, is actually exercise groups. So there, there have been studies that sh um, look at the um, consistency or the retention of people who go to the gym by themselves versus people who go to the gym, same gyms, uh, very similar types of gyms, but they go to a group exercise class, right? So whether it's a Zumba or a CrossFit or a body pump or whatever, you know, Peloton that you're doing. Um, well, if you look at it and track it over time, you're talking about on the order of six to 12 months, uh, people uh, stay uh, retained, they keep going to the gym much more if they go to groups. And it kind of counteracts this sort of New Year's resolution phenomenon where you go for maybe a few weeks in January and then you quit. And the reason for that is, well, you it's nice to see familiar faces, right? When you go into a group exercise class, there's a social component of it. Maybe there's a competitive component. And uh, I would say groups like um, CrossFit, maybe Orange Theory are good examples where they put you up on a leaderboard and you try to successfully compete. And also there's someone missing you if you don't go. And as human beings, we're very sensitive to that, right? They'll be like, I didn't see you at class last week. Um, and they might check up on you versus if you're gone alone, you know, people might not know or, or frank, quite frankly care. So um, it's not to say that you have to do everything in groups. There's obviously people who are very self-motivated and they can go to the gym by themselves. I'm certainly one of those people. But I'll tell you, even as a very self-motivated person who goes to the gym five days a week, when I had, um, you know, like a weightlifting buddy or when I ran, uh, ran a high intensity interval training group when I was a grad student at UCLA, I was even more consistent because... I would very rarely skip a day because I knew there was someone who was counting on me uh, to be there. Um, and so if there was a day I didn't sleep a lot, I'd, uh, if I was on my own, I'd be like, okay, maybe I'm gonna skip that day or maybe I'm not gonna work out very hard. But when there's someone else counting on you, it really does push you. So uh, I think in the, the downside scenario, it prevents you from skipping. But even in the upside scenario, if you've ever done competitive athletics, you can just push yourself much more when you're racing and competing against one another, when you do feel good, you'll actually push yourself to the limit. There's nothing like being like on a bench press and you're doing eight reps and you're tired and the, you know you have someone screaming at you, do one or two more. You can do it and I got your back in that I'm not gonna let it fall on you if you try and you fail. So it really does allow you to go above and beyond your capacity as well when you have that social support of being in the group. So I would say for all three of those reasons, there's a tremendous amount of support um, behind sort of uh, the concept of accountability groups. And we have a particular implementation of that 
in Maximus, right? So we're putting, um, you know, a dozen, two dozen people into these online squads. It's asynchronous, meaning that these aren't live groups. So traditionally group therapy is like an hour a week. You talk live just like we're doing here. But uh, I actually published three papers uh, when I was the uh, founding medical director of Omada Health showing that asynchronous groups, uh, just like the ones that we're doing here at Maximus, also work. We had people uh, lose 5% of their body weight, reduce their blood sugar levels, even regressing from the pre-diabetes to the normal blood sugar range um, because it's so much more convenient to do the asynchronous. Like, I'm glad all of you are here joining me Thursday at 6 o'clock, but there's also people who, you know, they're working or they're in a different time zone, they can't. So the benefit of the groups is, look, you just chime in whenever you have the time. You can literally, there's a Discord app, you can do it on your mobile phone as you're walking about town. Um, and so it's incredibly convenient. And uh, I think in some ways it makes up for the lack of synchronous uh, connection. Yes, it's always better to hear and see someone and hear their voice. But if you can't come on a consistent basis, uh, the asynchronous is just way more flexible, way more accessible. So we do know that even in this digital online model that we're doing, um, that can actually work pretty well as well. So Ben has a comment about, um, can you talk about how young guys are lacking good role models why are guys like joe rogan and jordan peterson so influential great question ben um so i have a whole theory actually about the rise of these uh male influencers um so if you don't know joe rogan is literally the number one podcast uh in the country tremendously an influential individual uh jordan peterson was called i believe by the new york times the most important intellectual in the western hemisphere and he had sort of a meteoric rise to fame um, and then you see kind of these um, uh, other influencers like David Goggins, Jocko Willenick, ex-Navy SEAL types who have had number one New York Times bestsellers, also tremendously influential. And it's kind of interesting. They're almost like overnight successes. Um, they've been doing their work maybe for a long time, but their rise to fame has been very accelerated. And to me, my interpretation of that, especially as a psychologist, is... Um, they're very, they're good at what they do, right? They're compelling speakers. They, they have a authentic story um, and, and they're probably naturally uh, influential. So no wonder they became influencers. But I also think it's symptomatic of a culture and a society that's desperately thirsty for positive male role models. And unfortunately we do live in what I call a hyper individualistic American society. Right. American society, unlike uh, especially a lot of Eastern cultures where it's collectivist, family oriented, uh, American culture is really about the individual. Right. It's about individual glory, individual success. Who do we celebrate? It's like the billionaire CEOs, the Musks and Bezos of the world that we sort of apotheosize or glorify um, versus like bringing glory to the family or the family name is emphasized much more in a lot of other cultures where you don't bring shame upon your family. And if you are successful, you're bringing um, that to your family, not just for your individual success. So I, I think that's part of it in, in a very hyper individualistic American culture. Um, you know, there's, there's uh, less of an emphasis on the family unit. And so there's less cousins, there's less uncles, there's less community involvement in the raising of young men that you see in a lot of other cultures. I always think that's really important because even if your father is great, your father is human. He's, all of our fathers are fundamentally flawed. They have good and bad things, but that becomes your primary template or your role model as a man. And if you only have one role model, you don't know how else to be as a man unless you are looking to other uh, role models or figures. So I think because of the lack of that kind of uh, family or community structure, um, if the father figure is missing in your life, whether it's because he's physically not present, as you know, like the divorce rate in the United States is somewhere around 50 to 60%. So a lot of young men literally grew up without fathers, or even if they did, their father may not have been sort of emotionally available or present to them, or maybe did not provide them with a lot of life advice or wisdom or counseling, or may have been strong in a particular dimension like uh, academics and professional advice, but didn't provide a lot of guidance about uh, fitness and health and dating and maybe things that quite frankly he was not good at and so I think as a result of that you're seeing people naturally drawn to uh, these sort of male uh, role models and my whole theory around them is that you're drawn to the type of um, influencer 
that fulfills sort of the archetypical need that you have. So for instance, uh, you know, Jordan Peterson uh, is, is kind of this like wise father figure. He's almost like this uh, magician archetype, right? Because he's so intellectual, he's a professor, a very heady kind of thing. And so if you didn't have that sort of wise father figure imparting wisdom about the right way to live and to clean up your room and put your shoulders back and uh, approach responsibility, um, you're going to want someone who's you know providing that in your life. If you didn't have uh, maybe a coach um, or maybe you miss having a coach from your high school sports days that is providing you with discipline, I think you're going to be attracted to these sort of warrior archetype guys, the David Goggins, the Jocko Willenicks who are pumping you up, motivating you to not skip a day at the gym, to get up early, to get up and grind, right? Um, and that's sort of the, the need that it's sort of fulfilling. Um, and I think there are, um, uh, but I think the unfortunate thing, by the way, is this one of the things I've noticed about these influencers is they, they tend to be very mono uh, dimensional, right? Like the Navy SEAL guys are great when it comes to inspiring you to work out. I'm not sure you want dating advice from them. And same thing with like Jordan Peterson. It's like, it's great in terms of like a wise philosophical figure uh, in terms of how to live your life. Uh, I don't know how much like masculinity sort of he imparts. Uh, that's my personal sense um, in terms of like, I don't know. Uh, dating and thinking about things in a, in a little bit more um, in a way that appeals to younger guys. So, uh, you know, certainly in the work that I'm doing, I, I'm trying to impart a certain archetype, which is a king archetype, which is an archetype of leadership, right? And showing that you can be a little bit more balanced than these guys. Like you can be an intellectual. I'm a psychologist professor like Jordan Peterson is too, but I also um, a competitive, was a competitive athlete. I still stay really fit. Um, so I'm a little bit more of like a brother archetype, um, in that, you know, whether it's an older brother or younger brother, depending on your age, I try to stay kind of relatable, um, to people and show that you can be strong and sensitive as a man. Um, and that's sort of my role modeling that I try to do with Maximus in the community. Um, so, uh, the way that I would describe it is I think everyone, every guy should have multiple levels of male role models. The ideal is you have an immediate role model, right? which is ideally like a, a father, a brother, maybe a cousin, like an immediate family member who um, is a good male role model to you that you can build a close, even physical relationship with, right? You can hug and shake hands and, and shed tears or whatever it is. If you have that, great. If you don't, then you may want to find sort of like, um, and, and, or in complement to that, even if you do, find someone who's like a second order male role model. So this is still someone you have a close relationship with, a good example might be a teacher, a coach, or a psychologist, right? So someone you can build a long-term relationship with, someone who genuinely cares about you, and maybe imparting particular skills or knowledge that they have and, and kind of teaching you, uh, you know, how to live better, how to develop a skill set professionally, um, how to manage your self-care and your mental health. And then I would say the third tier of sort of male role models are more aspirational role models. So these are not people that you have um, relationships with, but they're like live people. And this, uh, an influencer, I would actually is a good example of that. A professional athlete, like if you like LeBron James or Messi or whoever it is that's your role model, you know, uh, they can inspire you. And that's why boys have had posters of athletes on their walls for generations. This is not a new thing. So hero worship has definitely been a part of our culture for thousands of years. Um, so I, I do think someone that you can look at, look up to, um, you can learn a lot from. Um, and that's why, in fact, I'm a fan of reading biographies. You learn a lot about people's lessons. I would say even the fourth tier above that are, are people who are not necessarily even alive, right? They can be historical figures. They can be fictional figures, right? There's a lot of, even though it's not even a real person, like I think there's a lot. If you watch, for instance, the Batman trilogy from Christopher Nolan about how do you overcome your fears? And in fact, you you take your fears of bats and become uh, that and, and almost like attain mastery over your fears. There's a tremendous lesson and wisdom in that. So to kind of recap all that, you know, try to, if you have family members that can be positive male role models, take advantage of that and build those relationships. If you don't or in complement to it, try to find teachers, coaches, psychologists that can play that for you that comes from the community. Uh, above that, find influencers or athletes or role models that are inspiring to you. And fourth, find whether historical or fictional uh, characters that can be positive templates for you. I actually think it's useful to have at least one uh, of those role models across those four categories because it gives you almost a diversity. If you think about it, it's almost like a board of directors 
that you have of positive male role models, right? And you can almost use this, by the way, as like a, as a visualization exercise. Let's say you're going through a really difficult decision in your life, right? You got to pick a career or am I going to marry this woman or I got to move to this next town. Um, if you have those people that are real in your lives, like obviously go talk to them and get advice from the people that you have actual relationships with. But if you don't or in complement with it, one way of kind of tapping into your inner wisdom is to what do kind of what um, a colleague of mine calls like a board of a mental board of directors exercise where you kind of close your eyes. You imagine those role models sitting around at a table. Right. And you're thinking about, OK, what would my maybe my ex coach who maybe is not in my life anymore. But, you know, I almost like spent years with him. I know his voice. Or maybe what would this aspirational figure or athlete that I admire, what would he say? Or what would someone I really look up to and admire? What counsel might they give me? And it's a way of almost tapping into not only your intuition, but maybe some archetypes. Um, and, you know, obviously in certain religions, um, this is a common technique, right? So in the like Christian faith, people wear bracelets that say, what would Jesus do, right? Because it uh, personifies sort of the values of that belief system and guides you to like make better choices on a day-to-day basis. So you can do that with yourself with proper masculine, um, you know, uh, role models as well. Someone asked, what should a young man look for in a significant other? Great question. Um, I don't know if there's a right answer to that question. Um, but I'll, I'll give you some sort of higher level thoughts. I think you should be clear in terms of your phase of life, what exactly that you're looking for, because it does matter depending on your age, right? When you're a young, young man, um, you may not be in the uh, mode or quite frankly have sort of the um, resources to settle down. Um, and I do think it's important to kind of understand where you're at in terms of your life, right? You may be continuing to go through college. Um, you're not ready yet. You're sort of building yourself up. You're building up your career. You're building up your resources so that, for instance, one day, obviously, you can provide for a family. So if that's the case, what you're going to be looking for in a partner is going to look very different than a 35-year-old established man who's looking to settle down and start a family in the next few years, right? So I would say if you're on the younger end of the initiative, you you probably want to, first of all, like be transparent with whoever you're dating in terms of like what you're looking for. And even if you're not ready to settle down tomorrow, maybe it is someone that you want to start a relationship and maybe over the next five years or so start moving towards that. That's okay. And if it's just kind of like I want to date and explore and grow and learn and have fun, that's okay too. I am I am a fan of like just being honest and transparent in your dating interactions. Unfortunately, these days, I think the culture disincentivizes like authentic relationships and communications. Um, there's, there's not a, I don't think there's an inherent downside to shorter term relationships as long as you're honest and you're responsible about them. But the fact that we have to sort of dance around the issue and lie about it, uh, that's, that's what I'm less of a fan of. But I would say, especially if you're on the younger side of things, um, you, I think you, you should spend a lot of your time dating just in terms of learning what you, um, learning what you want and what works well for you. And that's hard to predict. You have to date various people to understand what you like, right? So when someone asks you the question, what do you like in a woman? Um, Until you've dated women, it's just an abstract idea. But once you've dated a couple different women, you'll learn turn-ons and turn-offs, things that you like, things that you don't like. And that just kind of comes from almost trying things out. It's just like the same concept. Like if you ask me like, what kind of food do you like? And you've never tried anything other than American food, uh, your palate's going to be very unrefined, right? But when you go out and try different cuisines of the world, uh, you're going to have a much broader sense of what the possibilities are. So I think that's actually a very important thing is, is just to get a little bit of like diversity and experience. The other part of it too is also when you're young, you want to learn how to be in a relationship. And a lot of young men literally don't have that as a social skill, right? Which is how do I, how do I date effectively? Um, how do I be a good boyfriend even when I'm in the context of a relationship, right? Like what's the right amount of support to give someone? Uh, you know, when my girlfriend's crying, like what do I do in that moment in terms of like being there for her and consoling her? And that literally comes through experience. It's, it's, it's a skill, like being good at relationships is a skill. And even if you're not settling down at 20, 
you should be in dating and be in relationships in order to develop that skill. Now, maybe that that relationship, like I said, that you're entering in your 20s could turn out to be a long-term relationship. Statistically speaking, more likely than not, it isn't going to be. You're probably, unless it's a college or high school sweetheart and you're one of those lucky few people who marry their first person that they date, wonderful. But most people, you're gonna end up dating at least a few people before you find the right one. And you should, quite frankly, get good at relationships. I do hear sometimes um, callers, sometimes from other shows who are quote unquote incels, you know, they get to like 30, 35, they've never been in a relationship. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, I'm looking for my life partner. I'm like, how are you going to manage being in a marriage if you've never been in a relationship? So you have to develop that sort of as a skill. Now, if you're a little bit older, right, and you're a little bit more um, you know, in sort of the marriage or long-term relationship mindset, maybe in your late 20s, 30s, late 30s. Um, so for the first thing I would say is men are a little bit more fortunate than women in that we have more flexibility around our biological clock. Um, men and women do have a biological clock, but quite frankly, men can father children at a much later, later age than women can. And while the risk of... Um, you know, pregnant, uh, you know, pre uh, uh, fetal abnormalities and pregnancy issues does go up with advanced paternal age. It's higher than in women. I believe advanced paternal age in women is like 35. It really becomes like a high risk pregnancy. Men, especially if they take care of themselves, can be quite fine even till let's say their 40s. Um, so that doesn't mean screw around when you're young, but you do have a little bit more wiggle room. The other thing that's really important too is men are totally judged differently. Um, women's professional advancement and assets, quite frankly, do not influence their dating prospects. That's sort of an unpopular opinion, but it's not an opinion. It's actually a fact. There's scientific literature that shows that the impact of in income on a man's attractiveness in the dating market is a thousand times more than for women, which basically means for women, it's almost insignificant, right? Um, in fact, if you talk to, I, I have a lot of uh, female friends who go through medical school, um, it probably hurts their dating prospects because they have no control over their lives for the next eight years. They're going to be forced to match and move around. It's very hard to have a long-term stable relationship, um, even though it's really good for your career and your earning potential. While for a man, uh, that would make you more attractive as a partner. You're like, oh, this guy can consistently bring in income. He's a high status uh, profession. He's doing good for the world. And it significantly enhances your dating prospects, even if you are busy and stressed and all those other things. Women are more forgiving of that because they're seeking stability a lot more than men are. So if you're in that later phase of life, I would say, you know, um, be sure at that point, you should know what you want out of a relationship. And I would say, try to prioritize dating people who fit that criteria. Unfortunately, I think in modern culture, there's such a, um, a convenient, convenience dating culture. It's very easy especially if you're a decent looking guy, you have good social skills, decent amount of status, you can date a lot, but it's hard to find the right one, right? The, the, the quantity far exceeds the quality. And the biggest mistake that I would say I see sort of um, a little bit older, like men who are marriage ready uh, do is they will date around saying that they're looking for the one, but they're kind of messing around, right? They're, they're engaging with people who, um, they're not really long-term material, but it kind of, it keeps their head warm. It keeps them engaged. They're not lonely. They have someone to sleep with, et cetera, um, while they're looking for the one. The mistake of that is, is that, you know, when you get too comfortable, right? You're, you have a hookup buddy or you have a short-term relationship. Um, what's your incentive to go out and actually meet the one, right? Or if you're getting your emotional or even your physical needs satisfied, uh, why should you go out and make the effort to do so? So I think um, counterintuitively, you almost have to like stay a little thirsty, stay a little hungry um, as, a, as a guy if you're serious about finding a long-term relationship. And the way that you do that is you keep the bar reasonably high. And I say reasonably in that it can't be unrealistic, but you should really only date people past the first or second date if you're looking for marriage, if you think they're long-term material. Um, and otherwise you're not wasting your time you're not wasting their time. Um, and so you're moving along towards your values at that point. So like I said, a little bit different goals, obviously if you're older and obviously you're in, you're in a marriage-minded mindset than obviously if you're younger and you're looking to just learn and explore. But that's why I think it's, it's, it's you can't sort of give generic advice. It depends on sort of your age 
um, your, your, where you're at in life and what you're looking for. Aiden asks, how did you start your masculinity initiative? Um, great question. You know, the funny thing is um, I really didn't care about masculinity probably prior to a year or two ago. So it's, it's funny to say now I run like uh, a whole company that focuses on uh, increasing or mass, uh, maximizing masculinity. And it was really two events that happened. So one, um, if you've never seen it, go on YouTube and uh, Google like Gillette masculinity. They had a whole commercial that was um, controversial and, and maybe it was purposely intended to be so that I think really slandered men. You know, it was kind of shaming men for uh, toxic masculinity and doing the wrong thing, which I thought was kind of ironic. I'm like, you're a men's shaving company. Like, why are you uh, uh, harassing your own customer and making them feel uh, guilt and shame? Um, and it, I, it was kind of ironic because I was like, you know, the whole, the, what's toxic is tox the whole concept of toxic masculinity, because we know, especially in psychology, that shame and guilt are not sufficient motivators. It's not going to change any men's behavior by uh, ridiculing, shaming, or canceling them. Uh, that doesn't work at all. Um, it's more of like a vindictive attack. Um, I would actually argue it's misandry, uh, which is sort of the male equivalent of misogyny. It's man-hating, quite frankly. Um, but it's kind of become popular to hate men. It's popular to hate white people currently. Um, to, to almost like uh, punish uh, men for the sins of the past, or what I would argue is the sins of a few. Now, the thing that I always clarify is, look, clearly there's, there's toxic um, behaviors that some people do that we should absolutely punish them. But it doesn't mean there's something inherent about masculinity that's toxic. That's why you never hear the term toxic femininity, right? There's women behaving badly, um, but it's not a function of their femininity. So clearly there's sort of a political agenda there. Um, and I saw the American Psychological Association do the same thing. They, they talked about, um, you know, classical or traditional masculine traits like competitiveness, aggression, uh, stoicism as being har psychologically harmful to boys, which I thought was complete nonsense. And I also thought it was misleading to try to uh, claim that there's strong science around that when really it was a handful of psychologists in a particular division of the APA that was pushing a particular agenda. Um, we know that like, uh, I mean, I certainly my belief that you should prepare young boys to be competitive because men compete in a social hierarchy and uh, you do better uh, when you know how to compete successfully. Um, stoicism is not about emotional suppression. If you actually read Stoic philosophy, it's learning how to manage your emotions in a tumultuous world. It's a useful trait. Um, and aggression is not bad if it's channeled uh, appropriately. We know that if you channel uh, aggression into sports, and, but you do it with a sportsman-like way, um, you're going to be better. All the great athletes are aggressive and competitive. So these are not harmful traits. And I, I thought it was so misleading and damaging that this message is being put out, not only by big corporations like Gillette, but the American Psychological Association, right? Which is supposed to be science-based. And so that's why I started to care about it, because I, I realized that there needs to be a voice that counters these myths, quite uh, frankly, um, and says masculinity in its mature form is positive. It's healthy. It's tonic. The world needs masculinity just like it needs femininity. We need both, quite frankly, and the world would be missing uh, something large if we didn't have both uh, significantly represented, but also encouraged in their mature forms. Um, and so that was kind of the whole inspiration uh, behind the movement uh, behind Maximus which, you know, we're a company, we're going to make money, we're going to sell products, we're going to have services. But the really the bigger mission and vision is to help men be uh, better in mind and body and to promote a positive masculinity. And I think we're quite frankly different than any other company because no other telemedicine company that I know is doing that. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, great question. All right. Jay has a question from YouTube. Can you elaborate with examples on selective disclosures for this tweet? Intimacy requires shared vulnerability. CEOs selectively self-disclose, only sharing what is effective and it is in your best interest. Great question, Jay. So a little bit of backstory about this, um, this, this tweet, right? So there's this popular notion, and I think it's terribly wrong, quite frankly, about like radical honesty. Like you can't have a good relationship unless you <clears throat> tell your partner, excuse me, 100% of the truth, which I'm like, I don't think I know anyone who tells everyone 100% of anything, quite frankly. Um, it's it's one of those things, it's like communism, it's like good in theory, it's terrible in practice, because like, for instance, imagine like telling your significant other, 
like how many people you've slept with and and the number is a number that they're uncomfortable with like how does that help or harm your relationship it's it's done it's in the past it's not going to really change anything going forward except it's they're going to make uh it's going to make them see you in a different light um whether it's low or high quite frankly so i'm not sure it's actually helpful to radically disclose some of those things same thing um you know there's there's a time and place to be you know positive and encouraging and there's a time and place uh, to kind of be harsh. And so, you know, it takes sort of social skill and savvy when someone's asking a question and maybe it's rhetorical, like, how do I look in this dress? The answer is sometimes you want to be honest if she wants honest feedback and sometimes she just wants a compliment. And that's your judgment as a guy to understand what she wants and needs. Uh, and you give her that, right? And so um, th that's why I don't generally think the concept of radical honesty um, is helpful. I also think it's actually radically selfish, to be honest, because you're not thinking about the other person's feelings. Um, in the philosophy of ACT, you do what's effective, right? Not, not just, it's not just being right or being truthful. And it's not to uh, dis, uh, dis, uh, encourage dishonesty or sort of a Machiavellianism in terms of the ends justifying the means, but it's saying, look, if you really care about this person, you know, you'll, you'll um, be attentive to that. So I'll give you an example. It's like, you don't tell kids the whole truth, right? If you're like struggling to pay the rent, a nine-year-old can't handle that information and they don't, they're going to have like nightmares because they don't know what to do with that. So you're, you're not going to be radically transparent with your kid. Um, now that almost, I think most people would agree with that concept. Um, with a partner, obviously they're much more emotionally mature, but it doesn't mean that they need to know everything and, uh, about you. You can still have a, a very emotionally close, um, very uh, emotionally available relationship without disclosing 100% of information all the time. I think that's very true for psychologists and CEOs. In fact, the rule as a psychologist is, is I do sometimes self-disclose when I'm working with a client, but when I do it, first of all, the, the default is to not disclose, okay? So you don't share information by default. If I do, I have to sit there and filter it through my mind and ask myself, is this about me or is it about them? Am I just sharing this because I need to vent and I'm making this therapy about me? because obviously that's not what they're here for, or by sharing this story, it's gonna help them because it's gonna illustrate that I can relate to them, or maybe there's something I learned that they can learn from. But literally every time I self-disclose, I literally run that little checklist in my head and, and make sure it's in their best interest, it's useful, and there's not another way I can convey that, right? So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very selective use of self-disclosure when you're, when you're a psychologist. I actually think it's the same thing as a CEO. I'm like all the CEOs I know worry about shit all the time, right? They have trouble sleeping at night. They're worried about what can go wrong. But if I mention that at every single team meeting, it's going to create unnecessary anxiety with the team, right? So it's not that I'm being dishonest about it, but um, you know, you want to be read the room and, and also people are looking to you for your emotional tone. You want to be confident as a leader. And people draw upon that and they distill their confidence from you. And if you have a CEO that's worried and anxious all the time, and that's the predominant emotion, they're not going to have faith in you. They're not going to have faith in the stability of the company. And so there's a time and place for it. Now, if there's an actual emergency, it's all hands on deck. And you're like, yes, we're worried. We got to fix this now. You can use that maybe even in a positive way to rally people around, rally the troops. But you can't be doing that all the time. Um, so... It's another example of why, you know, uh, I think sometimes like being a CEO is a, a very lonely job because you, it's hard to be honest with almost anyone, right? You can't be 100% honest with your team, can't be 100% honest with your investors because they're constantly judging and evaluating you. That's in fact why, to connect these two dots, I actually recommend every CEO has their own psychologist because it's the one person you can be 100% honest with who won't judge you, who uh, maintains confidentiality, won't disclose it to anyone. Um, and I will also provide you with non-judgmental compassion and that even if you fuck up some stuff, they're not going to be angry at you or judge you like, uh, you know, your team or your, your board will. So um, that's why, you know, I believe in self-disclosure, but it has to be selective. It has to be thoughtful and it has to be in the best interest of the person that you're talking to. So just be very thoughtful about what you share. It's not to hold back, um, but there's, there's a right balance and it's somewhere between not sharing anything at all and sharing everything. The right answer is not zero or 100%, somewhere in between. I think you should read the biographies of people that 
interest you or inspire you. I mean, I can tell you the ones that I thought were interesting, but I mean, that, that appeals to me, not you. Um, what I would encourage is, is to find people that you look up to um, and read their biographies because they're going to just speak to you in a different way, right? I'll give you an example, one that I, I read when I was in college that I thought was inspiring. I read um, uh, John Nash's biography, uh, which is called A Beautiful Mind, and they made it into a, a movie with Russell Crowe, which is beautiful. If you haven't seen it, check it out. Um, it's a very inspiring story because um, he had schizophrenia. And despite that, um, uh, had a very productive career in life. He founded, you know, the whole field of game theory and was a brilliant mathematician. Um, and, and, you know, part of the beauty of his story and, you know, whether in the book or the movies, he sort of like learns to deal with these voices that he hears from schizophrenia, which obviously scare, frighten and, you know, bother him to a great degree. Um, but he sort of like learns to make peace with them, almost diffuse from them and not recognize them as real. Uh, but they're sort of like aberrations or, or things that come from his mind um, and to make peace with them, which is which is very like in line with the philosophy of act. Like diffusion is one of the principles that we teach to not take your thoughts or your feelings or, or maybe even uh, auditory or visual hallucinations seriously uh, because they're not the truth. Right. Versus obviously, if you really think there's someone talking to you, well, you're going to have a very difficult life, uh, especially if you listen to what these voices say, which may not be helpful and can, in fact, be harmful. Um, so, I mean, I thought it was very ins inspirational because I don't know. I like stories about people who overcome things um, versus someone who's kind of like, you know, uh, was destined for greatness from the beginning. So um, I think that's part of the hero's journey, right? Great biographies, in, in my opinion, model sort of Joseph Campbell's uh, he has a book called A Hero with a Thousand Faces, and uh, the concept of it is basically there's only one story in all of humanity. It's the, the mono myth. And so whether you read the Odyssey all the way to George Lucas's Star Wars, it's, you know, the concept of a little boy or girl um, leaving their village or community because they're called to do something great. Uh, and they have to sort of they reject the call. Eventually they heed the call. They go out and fight monsters and demons in inner and outer, vanquish them, grow and develop, uh, go on magical adventures and journeys. And then they come back and they share that wisdom with their village or community. And so it all comes sort of full circle. I think great biographies essentially uh, uh, mimic that sort of plot line or narrative um, uh, and are very effective because they inspire you in, in a way that's very real. So, yeah, I, I would say, um, you know, that's one that I liked, but you should find uh, people that inspire you and uh, resonate with you and, and read those ones. Um, yeah, so <clears throat> the question is, uh, I don't know what I want in the future exactly. I know I want money, fun, and happiness. Uh, how do I create a five-year plan and reflect on those choices in my daily life? Can you please give an example? Um, nothing wrong with money, fun, and happiness. Um, I would... Uh, Take a little bit of a contrarian stance, though, in that um, while those are all good things, they're a terrible uh, metric in order to decide um, how to live your life. And I'll tell you why. Um, fun and happiness are uh, emotions. And the problem with emotions is that they're fleeting. I don't know anyone who is having fun 100% of the time. I don't know anyone who's euphoric, uh, like ecstatically happy 100% of the time, even, even relatively ha happy people. The problem with using that as your North Star in life um, is that you're going to be constantly essentially chasing a high. Um, I would argue if that's what you want out of life, you should go do a bunch of cocaine because that's the basic, the best way to feel euphoric and have fun uh, all the time. Now, obviously that's not my real advice because that's a disastrous way of living. Most people who are cocaine addicts do have a lot of fun and then they crash and burn and develop health problems, social problems, all kinds of problems, right? Um, because you can't chase a high forever and you know there's disastrous consequences when you do. The other, the other problem with chasing feelings is you may, maybe even drug-free, be having fun or having or being happy and it's a Sunday afternoon and you're enjoying, you know, sitting on the beach and hanging out and doing your thing. And then you're thinking, oh shit, Monday morning I had to go to work and this is going to end. And now you have sort of the Sunday scaries as they like to call it. And you're even in the moment while you're having fun, while you're experiencing bliss, if you will, 
you're not able to enjoy it because you're thinking about when is it going to end and be over, right? So that's the kind of the cruel irony is even, even when you have the thing that you want, you're not able to, to fully enjoy it because you're, you're so attached to it that uh, you know that it's going to end. So it just illustrates that essentially hedonism, which is the lifestyle basically that you're talking about, is not a great way to live. And in fact, we've known this for thousands of years. That's why the Greeks, earliest, you know, some of the earliest philosophers, talked about the difference between hedonomia or hedonism and eudonomia or a different way of living, which is not about pleasure seeking, but it's about seeking meaning, fulfillment, and satisfaction. And that's not a feeling. It's actually a, an appraisal, right? So if you say, I'm satisfied with my life, that's a cognitive appraisal, meaning it's an evaluation of your life. And right now you may be going through a lot of shit. Maybe someone in your family who's sick, you may be sleep deprived, you may not be having fun, but you're like, net, net, I have people that I love, I have people who love me, uh, I like the work that I'm doing, I find meaning in it, uh, and I wake up and I'm excited to bring my, you know, share my skills and gifts to the world. And so you can be satisfied and unhappy in the moment. You can be satisfied and not have, not be having fun right now. Um, and it's a much more stable and robust way of living your life. So that's the first thing that I would say is nothing wrong with a little bit of pleasure, a little bit of pleasure, but like chasing pleasure or hedonism is a terrible way of living. So what I would encourage you is actually maybe you should rethink what exactly you want in the future exactly, because those things are, uh, it's the cherry on top, it's the bonuses, it's the, it's the, 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 the nice little, you know, uh, accentuations of life, but it's not the purpose of life, uh, I would argue. I would say a much um, uh, better and more effective way of living is to identify what are the values or what are the things in life that are important to you. And let me distinguish between goals and values because this is a very important point. Goals are like, I want to be famous. I want to make a lot of money. I want a hot wife or husband. Uh, you can uh, you can tell you can uh, you can say I checked it off my list I did it or I didn't do it. Goals are by definition achievable. The problem with them is you're gonna have some lofty goal and maybe you'll never achieve it. Maybe you'll never win that Oscar. Maybe you'll never find the trophy husband or wife. And then you're gonna say my life is not good because I haven't achieved my goal, right? Versus a value is totally different. A value is by definition unachievable. In fact, you can live your value in any given moment. So as opposed to saying, I want a trophy wife, right? And I, I, maybe I'll find her in five years. You can say, what's my, what's my value there, right? I want to be a, a loving person to other people, right? That's the actual value. It's like, well, what are you going to do with your trophy wife? You're just going to hold her up like a trophy? No, you want to be loving, right? That's the character. That's the quality that you want to have with her. And even until you find her, there are multiple, uh, opportunities or avenues for you to express lovingness or loving kindness in your everyday life. Maybe you go downstairs in your building and you, you just say hi to the doorman and you give him a nice smile. And that's the way that you're loving. Maybe when you're on a date, you treat that person kindly and you hold a door open for her. Uh, and that's your way of being loving. So there's many ways of being loving when you live a values oriented life even if you haven't achieved that like great goal. And it's not to say that you shouldn't have lofty or ambitious goals. But what I would argue is that when you have values that are crystal clear, the nice thing is, by the way, values are enduring. I literally thought about what my values were when I was 21, 22, and pretty much they're the same to this day. I have a value around alleviating human suffering and helping people achieve their potential and optimize their health. And I didn't know exactly how I do it. I didn't think I'd be running a company one day, but that's the best way of me expressing that value, right? And so the value always stays the same. You may come up with different goals that can achieve that, right? I can do that one-on-one -on -one as a clinician, which I do, right, in a private practice where I coach CEOs and VCs. I can do that as a professor where I train psychiatrists, the next generation of doctors, to treat other people. So that's one step removed. Or I can do it through a company where we can help hundreds of thousands, if not eventually millions of people through this platform, through the telemedicine that we're doing, et cetera. So if the value is around helping people, alleviating suffering, uh, maximizing health, there are many, many different goals that I can uh, uh, achieve that value with. And so it, it allows for a great deal of flexibility in your life, much more flexibility than 
uh, I need to win an Oscar. Or that's the only way that my life is worth living or, or that's the only metric of success that I have. So what I would encourage you to do is maybe after this podcast, take a little bit of time to journal. Journaling is a great way of sort of making sense of, you know, your thoughts and think about what are some values that are not goals. They're inachievable, right? They're, they're qualities more about who you want to be rather than what you want to do. And think about who do you want to be in five years uh, rather than what do I want to do in five years? Because when you're crystal clear about who you want to be, the goals will naturally um, uh, elaborate themselves. So for example, if you're like, you know what? I really do want to be, you know, a loving person, a loving partner to someone, right? And then you'll be like, okay, well, what are the goals to do that? Well, maybe I should go out and date. Maybe I should find a girlfriend. And the, that's the goal. That's the expression of that thing. Um, let's say you have a, um, uh, a value around uh, health, right? You want to maintain your health and maximize that. Then you'll come up with goals about, okay, how do I need to work out, exercise, eat right, etc. They come out of the expression of that value. But if you're blocked in some way, like, you know, gyms are closed during quarantine as we experienced in the last year, you're like, great, maybe I can't do my weightlifting goal, but there's other ways I can achieve my health goal and I have to get creative around it. That's the nice thing about values. You can always live any value in any given moment and there's many ways of expressing it. So um, if you're interested in this philosophy, this comes from a psychotherapy called ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, which I teach and practice. And so there's a great book. Um, I'll type it in the show notes. It's called The Happiness Trap. It's written by a colleague of mine, Dr. Russ Harris. And it's a great primer essentially to ACT philosophy. And the reason it's called The Happiness Trap, it's exactly the answer to your question, which is his whole thesis is the reason that Americans are so miserable is because they're obsessed with the pursuit of happiness. And we just talked about why <clears throat> pursuing happiness as your goal in life is very problematic. So instead of chasing happiness, chase uh, meaning and living a values-driven life because you're going to end up um, uh, with a much more flexible um, uh, way of living that can deal with the ups and downs much easier. And here's the trick and secret to the whole thing. <clears throat> People who live value-driven lives, even though their goal is not happiness, they end up happier. So that's the, that's the beautiful irony. Um, yes, so one of our um, commenters... Um, also said um, <clears throat> he needs to get more specific with his goals and do the keystone habits to reach them. So yeah, that's a great like micro level advice. I was kind of giving macro level advice about you got to know what your values are in life because if you're thinking about five years down the line, um, it is useful to think about who you want to be. If you're thinking about like the next five hours, um, sometimes it's intimidating to like think about these bigger uh, picture questions like where do I, uh, where do I want to go or where do I want to be in four or five years? from now. So the way that I kind of like get people grounded and say, okay, these are important questions. You should take some time to reflect and write about them. But I know you're a procrastinator, so you may not do that immediately. So why don't we stick in the here now, start a keystone, just write down for four minutes what you're going to do in the next four hours. Um, and then, you know, you can make sure that you're using your time productively and starting to make slow and steady progress towards some of your goals. So these are complementary things. You have to know what your values are in order to come up with your goals. And then once you know what your goals are, you use a, a, a system like the Keystone Habit to make sure that you are taking daily actionable steps toward them and you're progressing and you're iterating and you're overcoming barriers to doing so. So uh, they're, they're very uh, complementary. Uh, Keystone Habit is very behavioral, uh, you know, act and values, sort of values exploration, getting contact and clarity with your values um, is a, a little bit higher level, but you kind of need to do both. I had a question ever since you mentioned that in your own private practice, you you see a lot of CEOs and VCs, mm -hmm. uh, wealthy people, successful people, very busy people. Mm -hmm. My question is, can you be can you be that kind of person, a successful, a wealthy person, influential, and not fall into traits of narcissism or psychopathy such as being manipulative and not having a problem stepping over other people to get what you want yeah it's a great question right <clears throat> so the question is you know I, I work with a lot of um very successful ceos and vcs in my private practice and the question is do you have to um you know become uh, narcissistic or machiavellian or psychopathic 
uh, any of these dark triad traits, so to speak, um, in the pursuit of success? Um, and the, the answer is absolutely not. Because I, I can tell you, I, in fact, every single one of my clients as part of the um, initial intake, right? I do a comprehensive psychiatric assessment. So I, in fact, I, I literally measure them on those three traits, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. And so it tells me for this individual uh, client, uh, where do they lie on the spectrum, right? So there's a percentile from one to the 99th percentile. And I'll actually tell you the overwhelming majority of my clients do not come up as high or even above average on those three traits. Now, there may be a little bit of a self-selection bias in the sense that I'm sh I know there are CEOs out there that are high in dark triad traits. Maybe those are the ones that don't come to therapy or coaching because they don't think there's a problem. So I fully acknowledge that that may be a bias, but I work with a fair deal of, you know, I've worked with a lot of people. Um, and so um, including some very successful uh, folks and who are quite low, in fact, on those qualities, maybe even lower than average, uh, I would say. So um, I, I do think it's important to, to realize that success is not a zero sum game, right? I think actually it's one of the best things that's come out of Silicon Valley is, um, yeah, there's certain industries where maybe it's winner take all. But like, for instance, I was just talking to someone, CEO of a furniture company, and he was saying that furniture, like he, he actually talks to his competitors and they share tips and give advice to each other. And you're like, that sounds crazy. But he's like, furniture is so big of a market. It's like a trillion dollar like total market that you can, you can have multiple billion dollar companies uh, in that. And so he had a very uh, non-zero sum philosophy um, and you know lived his life that way. I was actually very impressed. He just told me that like two hours ago. I was in, I was in a you know plat uh, panel with a bunch of other CEOs. Um, and uh, he's, his company is very, very successful, by the way. So, But I don't think it's a coincidence, right? I think people who, um, you probably do need to be competitive to be a successful CEO, but it doesn't mean you need to be an asshole, <laughs> quite frankly. I, I'm sure he is competitive, but uh, he knows that playing well with others is beneficial to the whole industry. And there's a lot of industries, by the way, where cooperating with your competitors actually is better for all of you. Because if you go attack each other, the, you know, uh, the, the government or regulators may just want to knock all of you down. So I think there's, in fact, a lot of room for cooperation, uh, even in capitalism, even in a highly competitive market. Um, and it may, in fact, behoove you uh, to, to be that way. So, um, no, I don't think you need to, to be. First of all, I don't really think you can become psychopathic. It's, it's a little bit more genetic. Um, so I don't think you have to worry too much about that. Uh, narcissism um, is typically more developed through early childhood experiences. I think there maybe are examples of people who become like overnight successes. Maybe they were like the nerdy kid in high school and all of a sudden they become a hotshot CEO and they're, you know, uh, being chased by whether it's investors or founder hounders, uh, as we like to joke. Um, and maybe it does go to their heads. Um, but I think that's why being grounded, um, being clear what your really your values are, what's your purpose for doing this? Is it to I don't know, uh, uh, make a lot of money and, and date a bunch of people, or or did you have a bigger purpose for starting this company? Uh, remembering why you got into it and is keeping uh, keeping that close to heart, I think, is really important. The thing that I think is the biggest risk is Machiavellianism, because Machiavellianism is the most easily made of the three dark triad traits. I think everyone can become Machiavellian. And in fact, you know, this is, uh, you know, like you'd argue World War II sort of shows shows that, right? Like a lot of the Nazis as, uh, were not in, intrinsically psychopathic people, but they went along with the party lines due to the incredible social pressure, right? Um, and there's a lot of psychology that validates sort of that. Don't get me wrong, there's definitely some evil uh, that, that happened, but um, there's a ton of literature that shows that, um, you know, this is the Stanford prison experiment, even though that was kind of debunked, but the principle still applies in that um, anyone can become Machiavellian or even act in, you know, mildly evil ways if there's the right environment or social pressure. That's the thing I think people need to watch out for is it's very easy to cut corners, uh, skip steps, et cetera, uh, or do things where the ends justify the means. Um, but I, I think that's why you have to have principles and values, right? Um, you know, I was talking about this with my team the other day, uh, uh, you know, about like, where do we draw the line? 
um, when it comes to keeping our culture. Um, like we have a certain process, for instance, in how we interview folks. There was someone who disagreed with it and didn't want to do it. And I thought to myself, you know what, maybe they have a valid point. But for us, keeping our in the integrity of our culture and having really good people work at our company is really important to us. And so we're not willing to, you know, bend or flex, even if it might help hire this person. Um, and so uh, I, I think you just have to know what's important to you and stick to your guns. Um, and I think that's where principles and values um, uh, make all the difference. So great question. But yes, you can do good. You can be good and do well in the world. Uh, it's absolutely not mutually exclusive. So thank you, everyone. Great show today. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. We can continue to chat asynchronously on the Discord channel. And we'll talk again next Thursday as well.